Home sweet home. Home is where your heart is. You make yourself at home now, you hear? There's no place like home. I'm homesick. I want to go home. Where is home for you? To answer that question, it really just depends on how you define home, right? You might define home simply as the place you were born. Or maybe the place where you weren't physically delivered, like in a hospital. But maybe the place where you were raised in your more formative years, middle school and junior high and high school. For me, I was born and came into this world on September 13th, 1985 in Augusta, Georgia. That's because not where the masters are necessarily, though that's true, it's because that's where my mom's doctor was located. But for the first nine years of my life, I grew up in the small towns of Bamberg and Blackville, South Carolina. But then from about nine years old through high school, I lived most of those years in Savannah, Georgia. Now at 37 years old and having lived in Washington, D.C. and now Fort Smith, Arkansas, it's a perplexing question. For me personally, when people ask, Blake, where's home? Where do you call home? Well, these days in 2022, my parents and brother don't live in Savannah anymore. And I only have one grandparent still living in that small town of South Carolina. Maybe you can relate to the uncertainty of how to answer that question of where you're from. Now, some of us may still call home simply where your aging parents now live, even if you personally haven't lived there for many years. The town or city uh, may have drastically changed since you lived there, and almost no one lives there today would know who you are or even maybe remember you. But because mom and or dad are still there, it's still home for you. And for others of us, we call home wherever our family lives today regardless if you grew up there as a kid or not. Home is simply wherever the people you live with and love are currently living. Home for you is defined by an intimate closeness to your people rather than an affinity towards some nostalgic place. Now, in a room full like this, the whole discussion surrounding home can even be a touchy and sensitive subject to talk about. There might be memories from your home life you're trying to block out. And there isn't much really sweet that you care to talk about from your child-rearing years. Think, for example, a child who's entered into foster care. How would he or she define home? Living from house to house, foster parent to foster parent, orphanage to orphanage. Home feels to them more like a hotel stay feels for us. Here a little while there a little while, not really knowing where you're going to rest your head next month. Or think about a refugee, someone who's been forced against their will to leave their home due to something like violent oppression, war, famine, or facing unbearable danger all around them. In fact, one British Somali poet by the name of Warsan Shire once wrote a graphic description of how refugees view home. 
because the poem is pretty graphic and there's young children in the room, I'm not going to read the whole poem. I'll just read excerpts from it. The title of the poem is called Home. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. You have to understand, no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. Who would choose to spend days and nights in the stomach of a truck unless the miles traveled meant something more than the journey? I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun, and no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore. Or think of Christian missionaries, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who've been sent out for the sake of the name. They've been obedient to the command of Christ and the call of God on their lives to go, to go to the people groups who are either unreached or unengaged with the gospel. Friends, think about the untold amount of men and women, boys and girls who have left their home, left their home city, left their home state, left their home country. They've left it all behind, including their own family and friends. If you spend time with missionaries, and I would encourage you, if you ever have one visiting in the area, I would encourage you to spend time with them. If you ask them how they're doing, and then you ask them, how are you really doing? Somewhere along the way in that conversation, they will tell you they can feel homesick at times. But if you ask them, well, then why do you stay? Why do you stay in a foreign place away from home if it's so hard. The solid missionaries who are worth more than all the gold in the world combined, they will not be hesitant to tell you why they stay. They will tell you that when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, that they counted the cost. They will tell you that they believe Jesus is truly the surpassing treasure who is worth losing earthly comforts and earthly fame for, including the earthly comfort of a home. They will tell you that the kingdom of God and the Great Commission is worth any risk-taking sacrifices you have to make if that is what God is directing one of his children to do home. Where is home for you? Why do you call that place with those people your home? Brothers and sisters, regardless if we're missionaries sent out to a foreign land or members of a local church serving and making disciples right here in our hometown of Arkansas or Oklahoma, we all should be experiencing a little homesickness. We all should be longing to be in a particular place with a particular people for a particular purpose, longing for something way better than we could imagine, way better 
that we'll, we'll ever experience in this dying body and in this fleeting life. We should all be longing, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, for a home that this world cannot give you. In Nehemiah's day, the people of Israel have been longing for home. And under Nehemiah's leadership and Ezra's help, and, and of course the favor of God's sovereignty directing them, they were beginning to experience the long-awaited fulfillment of many years of homesickness. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 231. Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11, I'll be starting in verse 1, and I'll read all the way to the end of chapter 12. Please follow with me. Now, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, well, nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah. And of the sons of Benjamin, of the sons of Judah, Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez, and Maaseah, the son of Baruch, the son of Kohoza, son of Hayaziah, son of Adaiah, son of Joyarib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, son of Joab, son of Pedeah, son of Kaleah, son of Maaseah, son of Ithiel, son of Jesheah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanua was second over the city. Of the priests, Judea, the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Saraiah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Mareuth, son of Ahatub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Judea, the son of Jeroram, son of Peleliah, son of Amzai, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. And Amashai, the son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshilamoth, son of Emir, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zadbiel, the son of Hagadolam. And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashab, son of Azikram, son of Hashabiah, son of Bunai, and Shabbatai and Josabad of the chiefs, the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God. 
And Mattaniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was of the leader of the praise who gave thanks. And Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers. And Abda, the son of Shemua, son of Galal, son of Jaduthun. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Echub, Talman, and their brothers who kept watch at the gates were 172. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived in Ophel, and Ziah and Gishpah were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers, as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshezebel, of the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba, and its villages in Dibon, and its villages and in Jechabaziel, and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Molada, and Beth Pelet, in Hazar Shual, in Beersheba, and its villages, in Ziklag, and Makona, and its villages, in Imran, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zenoah, Adullam, and their villages, Lachish, and its fields, Azekah, and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward, like Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitjamon, Hadid, Zeboam, Nabalat, Lod, Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. Chapter 12. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sareah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Malak, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Merimoth, Edu, Ganithioi, Abijah, Midjamin, Maadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Judea. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Benuai, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbukiah and Unai and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joeda, Joeda the father of Jonathan, Jonathan the father of Jadua. And in the days of Jehoiakim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, of Sariah, Moriah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehonanan, of Malushai, Jonathan, Shebaniah, Joseph, of Haram, Adna, of Marioth, Hilkiah, of Edu, Zechariah, Genethion, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Minyamin, of Modiah, Piltai, of Bilgah, Shemua, and of Shemeah, Jehonanan, and jo- Joyarib, Metaneah, of Judea, Uzai, of Salai, Kalai, of Amak, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashbiah, Hashabiah, of Judea, Nathanel. In the days of Eliashib, Joadiah, Johanan and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign 
of Darius the Persian. And for the sons of Levi, their heads of father houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashim. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbukiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest and scribe. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Azmatheth, for the singers who had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah upon the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate, and after them, Hoshea, the half of the brother, leavers of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milai, Gilali, Mai, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshina, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priest Eliakim, Maaseah, Minyamin, Micaiah, Elenui, Zechariah, Hananiah, with trumpets. And Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehonanan, Malchijah, Elam, Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priest and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, 
And in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is God's word. Well, we have come across another passage full of names once again. Similar to last week's list of names in Nehemiah 10, these names represent individuals, but also names of families and those who were descendants of those families. Similar also to previous weeks, like Nehemiah chapter 3, in Nehemiah chapters 7 and 8, we see a list of names of priests, Levites, heads, chiefs, and leaders of the people. Just as a refresher, who are the priests and Levites? The priests and the Levites, these are men who gave themselves to preparing and receiving the tithes from the people that were used for the temple maintenance and the temple worship. They are also men who gave themselves to praying for the people, offering up sacrifices and offerings in the temple on behalf of God's people. These would have also included men who assisted in temple worship, such as teaching God's law to God's people, like Ezra, men who gave themselves to expounding the scriptures verse by verse, we might say, or precept by precept, line upon line, so that the people properly understood and applied God's word to their life. And there were also rulers and overseers who gave themselves to varying levels of civil and military governance in the villages and districts. We can even see that if you look down at Nehemiah 11, verse 6. Uh, Did you notice in the ESV, it translates valiant men. Valiant men. What does that mean? Well, your translation may say something like this. Able men. Capable men. Men of strength or men of substance. In other words, men that had more than a plastic backbone, men who were strong, men that others looked up to as strong. Again, remember the walls were up. They had protection, but now they needed certain types of men, men of strength, men of valor that were committed to protecting the people in the city. And of course, we see in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 26, verse 36, and verse 38, men like Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the prescribe show up again in this long list of men. We also see in chapters 11 and 12 a list of singers. So everyone who serves on the music team, this is, should be insightful and encouraging to you. In chapter 12, verse 31, and in verse 38, we even see the mentioning of two choirs of singers. And it even mentions those who would give themselves uniquely to being the head or lead role in facilitating the singing. So this morning, that's what Matt did for our church. And in other Lord's Day gatherings, that's what Ian often does for our church. They lead out in singing God's praises. You see that there in chapter 11, verse 17, there was a man named Mataniah. He was a leader of the praise, or in other words, he was the head or beginning of singing God's praises to God's people. 
in our vernacular today, we might call this the song leader or the music minister or maybe a little more street level, the music guy. Bottom line, that's who we're talking about right here in chapter 11, verse 17. And then in Nehemiah 11, 22, we even read how there was an overseer, much like a supervisory role that a man named Uzai played. Apparently, he gave oversight in organizing the singers and supporting their specific roles in the worship. And then we know that even amongst the Levites and the priests, there were also those who were skilled musicians. God can be glorified when people use skilled musical instruments to accompany me singing God's praises. We see in Nehemiah 12, verse 27, of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Then in Nehemiah 12, verse 34, and in verse 41, we read of trumpets. Now, don't get any clever ideas. If someone shows up with a trumpet, it's just going to be awkward. But save that maybe for maybe the fall festival. Like previous chapters in Nehemiah, we see again also the role of the gatekeepers. We see them mentioned multiple times in these chapters. Chapter 11, verse 19. Chapter 12, verse 25. Verse 45 and verse 47. Who are the gatekeepers? Well, they're exactly what it sounds like. They guarded or protected the gates into the city, and particularly the temple worship. Gatekeepers were called to prevent unqualified people from entering into the gathering, or at the very least, preventing any unclean or unholy, according to God's word, things coming on into the temple and being carried on in the temple. Uh, this would, at the very least, prevented people who were uh, not circumcised. They were not of the people of Israel. They had not cleansed themselves, according to the Levitical law. Uh, but they were also been somewhat like many bodyguards, making sure no one stole any of the resources or worship gathering materials for the temple worship. Aside from these roles, there's also the mentioning of ordinary citizens in Israel. So a few times you hear the sons of Benjamin, the sons of Judah, or you might even hear just Israel. These are just speaking about the common layman. They didn't have any special titles, but they were a part of the people of Israel. And then we also see temple servants in chapter 11, verse 3. But why are these names here? Why are they here mentioned this time again and even more names and more titles and more descriptions at the very end of a book? Well, think for a moment. What's been going on in chapters 8, 9, and 10? Revival. God doing a supernatural, out of the ordinary, powerful work of grace in his people's hearts. And friends, God had used the ministry of the word, which led to confession and repentance of sin, which led to a holy commitment and resolve to be one people under one God for God's purpose. What was to happen next? If God was doing such a powerful work after months and months of pruning and purging, equipping, and encouragement. What was the end result? What was the target all along that God was doing in his people? 
Well, there are two main themes that really just kind of jump off the page. If you're reading a passage like this in your quiet time, you're like, man, I have no idea what to do with that. Well, welcome to my study on Wednesday morning of this week. There are two themes, though, that are talked about all throughout Scripture that jump off the page that are worth highlighting. Those first things, number one, there is order among God's people. There is order among God's people. In other words, it's not chaos. It's not a dumpster fire. It's not an utter mess. There's order among God's people. Hold your place in Nehemiah 11. I want you to turn back to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. You see, over the last three chapters and four or five sermons or so, we've been really focused on that seventh month, the month of the Feast of Booze and all the different things that went into that religious month of all the different feasts, the reading and teaching of God's law, etc. and so forth. But before that began, Nehemiah did something because there was a need amongst the nation of Israel with where people would live. And we've kind of left off kind of like a cliffhanger in Nehemiah 7 that hasn't been resolved yet until Nehemiah 11. Look with me in Nehemiah 7, verses 1 to 5. Now, when the wall had been built, so the wall was completed, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. So what happens for the rest of Nehemiah 7? Nehemiah finds this genealogy that's been recorded down, and then over the next 67 verses in chapter 7, it spells out the family genealogy of those who had come out of captivity in Babylon and had been delivered and returned to Jerusalem, listen, a hundred years before Nehemiah's arrival. This is not a list of the contemporaries looking at him. He's looking at the names of families, leaders, from at least a hundred years ago that would have represented many of the people sitting in there. In other words, he's pulling out an ancient book, an ancient record, to show that in order for us to move forward, like God delivered Israel out of the Exodus, and when God brought them into the promised land in the book of Joshua, order would be a key ingredient to guiding his people. You'll notice there in verse 4, again, the city was wide and large. It was massive. But the people within it were few. And verse 4 says, no houses have been rebuilt. 
In other words, within the vast majority of Jerusalem, the capital city of their home nation, it was largely desolate and unoccupied. Now, it wasn't ghost town. There were people there. But it certainly wasn't a hustling and bustling metropolis with hordes of people moving in either. But in verse 73, look at Nehemiah 7, verse 73. Verse 73 tells us, of chapter 7, once the list had been collected together and the people were enrolled in accordance to the regulations of God's word, we read this. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. In other words, instead of living in a wartime mode of fighting for their lives, as they had done in chapters 4 and 6, and instead of living in kind of like an ongoing construction project mode, as they were building the wall for quite some time in chapters 4 and 6, they were now becoming a more civilized nation. They were building houses. They were establishing commerce. They were conducting weekly and monthly corporate worship again. Friends, as their lives were revived and they reestablished their lives in the community, there was now life, peace, joy, strength, and hope being brought into that community. Friends, let me just make an aside here. The church of Jesus Christ has a mission from King Jesus. That mission is not for us to create America as a Christian nation. That is not the New Testament commission. The New Testament commission is make disciples of all nations. We want as many people in America to be born again. We want to evangelize our socks off. We want as many Christians as possible in this country. We want as many Christians as possible in Fort Smith and in Barling. That's why we're here, to evangelize, to tell the good news. But friends, there's a big difference between trying to reform governmental structures, which are important, and Christians should speak in the public square, as the church of Jesus Christ, our mission is proclamation. Our mission is evangelization. God determines how many Christians will live in that nation. And friends, when more Christians live in that nation, it will be a more blessed nation as a result. More joy in God will be increased. Peace, love, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit will be more commonplace in the place you live. So friends, pray. Jesus told his disciples, the harvest is what? Plentiful, but the what? Laborers are few. Pray that God would send more genuine born-again believers to Fort Smith. More born-again believers to Barling so that more people can hear the good news. 
You see, they were receiving the inheritance that God graciously and sovereignly had given Israel in generations past. Friends, they were going home. They were inhabiting land God gave them. They were going home to land that God, not your mama, not your daddy, God had reserved for them to be in that promised land. For the Jews, going home was more than country roads and familiar front yards. Going home to their land also meant this, they were returning back to God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Remember what Psalm 90 verse 1 says? O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. It literally means our home, our tabernacle. Returning to the land meant they were returning to God. Now turn back to chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. In Nehemiah chapter 11, the dilemma now was not that people were building houses or occupying towns, that that was happening. They were moving on in. The big dilemma of Nehemiah 11 was finding enough people being willing to repopulate back into the city limits of Jerusalem itself to move into Jerusalem proper, we might say. Not the suburbs, not the country, but to Jerusalem. To move into Jerusalem and to make Jerusalem their happy home. In other words, the vast majority of the people rightly and understandably went back to their own villages, districts, and towns that God had promised them. That means it was a gift from God, and they were not in sin for going back to their land. And think about it. What makes home, home, buttermilk biscuits, macaroni and cheese, comfortable bed, home sweet home. Think about the aroma. Think about the comfort. Think about the familiarity of wherever you call home. Friends, they were going back to what was familiar to them. But the capital city was being neglected. The city of God, as the scriptures allude to Jerusalem, is not where the vast majority of the people were moving to. But friends, think of this. Why is that a dilemma? Of all places that were being neglected, that were not being considered by the people to relocate and settle down in was the very place the temple or the house of God was located. It was the one place God had chosen to make his name famously known. The place where God would behold, they would behold God's glorious presence and learn to submit to God's perfect rule. The place where God was teaching them and reteaching them what it meant to be a set-apart people a sanctified people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a place where God's people would be reminded that they were a light and witness to the nations of Yahweh. You see, if Jerusalem was going to be the holy city, verses 1 and verse 18, did you notice that? Twice Jerusalem was called the holy city. In order for Jerusalem to be a strong, distinct, 
and robust community for God's glory, there had to be at least somebody, some families, that wanted to move there. They had to be willing to make Jerusalem a new home for themselves. Jerusalem, a place where they would put down roots to bear witness to the nations. They had to give up the earthly comforts of a familiar place with its familiar blessings in order to strengthen God's royal city. Nehemiah knew this. Ezra knew this. The priests and the Levites knew this. We knew that from verse 1. And so they emphasized the need for ongoing mobilization and organization. Beloved, order is not simply a type A person's hobby horse. Order is one of the ways we image God in this world. Kids, that's why keeping your room organized and tidy is a God-honoring thing to do. Parents, can I get an amen? There we go. It shows respect for your God-given parents who you're called to honor. When you clean up after yourself, as you come alongside your parents and manage the household affairs. Adults, it's a good thing to work on being organized in your life and everything we do. Being a man or woman who thinks carefully how to prioritize and provide logistical direction for others is a good thing to do. This includes our jobs. It includes our families. It certainly includes the ministry of this local church. Whatever and wherever God has given you and I work to do and relationships to lead and serve is an opportunity to image God. Friends, mobilizing people, listen, to obey God is one of the ways we bring God glory. Mobilizing, motivating leading people, encouraging people, teaching people, sometimes challenging people towards serving and loving and obeying God in an orderly fashion brings him glory. Sometimes pastors joke, especially churches that are really difficult to pastor. Those brothers will say pastoring is like trying to herd a bunch of screaming cats. Well, praise God, this is not a church of screaming cats. Thank you for being a teachable congregation that is a joy to lead. You see, being organized and thoughtful and carrying out our plans is one of the ways we can commend our witness for Christ. Friends, this can happen in some of the most mundane ways and some of the most public ways that you and I don't even realize sometimes. We can image God in ordering our lives through things like stacking papers, preparing schedules, creating Bible study curriculum, cleaning floors, collecting data on Excel spreadsheets, all the way to being a well-respected drill sergeant over cadets, a supervisor who brings structure and sales or the HR recruitment, a well-organized teacher, school teacher, or coach or manager in athletics. Friends, there are so many different ways we can image God by mobilizing people to live out orderly lives. Friends, what is Genesis 1 all about? It's God speaking into existence creation. And what was man and woman called to do? 
to bring dominion over the earth, to subdue it, to bring order out of chaos. Anytime other people are depending on us for organization and direction, we get the privilege to image God to them. And friends, organization involves a whole lot more than just stacking papers, right? Things like time management can bring glory to God. Identifying the needs of the people, presenting a vision for others to get behind. These are all ways that we can commend our witness to Christ to others. Back to Nehemiah, really the combination here of chapters 11 and 12 are also showing once again the diversity of talents and skills amongst a large group of people, and yet amidst all their diversity, how has God used Nehemiah? He's taken a massive body of diverse people and brought them together as one to lead them in God-glorifying unity. Beloved, in the church, we should not expect any different. God is glorified in a gospel-preaching biblically ordered church. God is glorified in a gospel preaching, biblically ordered church. In Titus chapter one, Paul instructed Titus to organize the churches on the island of Crete first by establishing biblically qualified elders in place to shepherd those flocks. Titus one verse five, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every place. Or consider 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And later in the passage, Paul mentions one reason how we are called to conduct orderly worship gatherings each Lord's Day. 1 Corinthians 14, 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. At CCBC, I'm thankful for the order God and his kindness has brought about in this congregation. I'm thankful for Brad O'Brien, who serves as our church treasurer. He keeps an orderly account of our church's giving and expenses, which makes our job as elders when making decisions and leading the church through finances easier. I'm thankful for Jansen Lester and Grant Trotter, who assist me and the elders with preparing worship guides, elders packets, members meeting packets, purchases all around town, overseeing a few service teams, and keeping important documents saved and secured in an orderly fashion. I'm thankful for the cleaning service team and Jeff Hannon, who makes sure that our building is presentable and orderly looking as guests and members arrive. I'm thankful for David Harwood and the SEAL Team 6 of the security team, who work behind the scenes to assure we are protected in our gatherings. And if you are on the service team, valiant men is your text. Nehemiah 11, verse 6 valiant men. That's what we want. I'm thankful for the sound team who reassures that we can hear what's being preached through the mics and that we can listen to sermons on the podcast, how they're organized and recorded every week. I'm thankful for Casey Lester who continues to put together the slides on the screen each week. I'm thankful for Ian and Leslie Chain and Dorinda Smith. They give oversight and administration, logistics, recruitment, organization over things like children's ministry and the music team. Friends, we could just go on and on. There is a lot of organization that goes into functioning as a church. Churches that shoot by the hip, pastors that shoot by the hip, do not honor God. Deliberate, thoughtful, prayerful organization 
mobilizing God's people to do God's will glorifies our God. Friends, by by God's grace, let's continue to improve in our organization as we seek to glorify God even through things like that. The second bright and beautiful sign of God's hand blessing his people in Nehemiah's day was the continuity among God's people. There was continuity among God's people. What do I mean by continuity? I mean there was a baton that was passed successfully. God's faithfulness, once again, is on display as he continues, as he always has, providing the right leaders and the resources they would need to do God's work. Back in 538 BC, again, nearly 100 years before Nehemiah even shows up, how did this all even begin? The Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to provide for his people the means and support of leaving Babylon and going to Jerusalem. And what's interesting, in these two chapters of Nehemiah, we see this passing of the baton from one generation of leadership to the next generation of leadership amongst the people. So look down with me at Nehemiah 12. Nehemiah 12, verses 1 to 9, you'll see a few references to men named Zerubbabel and Jeshua, verses 1 and 7. Who are they? Well, if you know your Bibles well, or you can jot these down and look up later, these were the two leaders God had used over a hundred years ago in leading the first wave of exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. You can see their names pop up in Ezra chapter 2 and in the minor prophet Haggai. But in the very next section, sandwiched right next to it, look at Nehemiah 10, and then just 10 to 26 all kind of down together, we see who God would raise up Almost a hundred years later, God was continuing to work through people like Eliashib, the high priest, Nehemiah 12, verse 10. Who was Eliashib? Eliashib is Nehemiah's high priest in his day. Nehemiah 3, verse 1. And we see the same continuity also amongst the music team, right? Musical instrumentation, the singers and the choirs, These were first installed by David hundreds of years before Nehemiah shows up. In fact, we see in Nehemiah 12, verse 46, that it was a long time ago. That's what Nehemiah just says, a long time ago. And yet, what was done a long time ago was continuing on hundreds of years later in the revival taking place in Nehemiah's day. Friends, if you're living here now in 2022, and you are because you are alive and you're listening, you might be worried about what Christianity might look like in your grandkids' lives or your great-grandkids' lives, great-great-grandkids' lives. Friends, do you know why you and I are Christians today? It's because God's been faithful to his promises. There were Christians a hundred years ago sharing the gospel, listening to sermons, sitting under the preaching of God's word, giving regularly, suffering and sinning, just like us. How did Christianity stay in this area? Because God continued to be faithful. He raised up sound preachers. He raised up 
sound expositors. He raised up new churches. And behold, here we are today. God has been faithful in the past, and he will be faithful in the future. Friends, we serve the God who does not change. And we serve a God whose word always proves true. Beloved, he's alive. Our God's alive. He's reigning. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He made that promise to Joshua. He made that promise to the writer of Hebrews. He made that promise to us. And friends, God isn't lacking any resources to get his work done. He needs no one to get his work done. He sovereignly chooses to use fallible people like us to get his work done. As Christians, we can be comforted knowing that God's word is sufficient for our lives today, tomorrow, and it will be sufficient for the lives of our great-grandchildren a hundred years from now. God's word was sufficient for Abraham. God's word was sufficient for Moses. God's word was sufficient for Joshua. God's word was sufficient for David and Solomon. God's word was sufficient for Zerubbabel and Jeshua, for Nehemiah and Ezra. Friends, God's word is sufficient for us here at CCBC. God has been faithful a long time ago, and he's been faithful to us even right now. Why do I bang that drum so much at this point? That's why Nehemiah 11 and 12 is here. They're saying, you were exiles. You were under the divine judgment of God. You were wondering, will we ever have a leader rebuild these walls? Will we ever have an expositor teach us the word? Will we ever have our city and our nation like we once had, but better? Because they knew faintly what some of those promises were that God would return his people. And then God answered. God brought Nehemiah, God brought Ezra, and God brought revival. Friends, the world might be fearful and anxious about all the unknown of the future. But as the people of God, regardless if we live in Africa, China, or the United States of America, we can look confidently into the future, not because we know all that will happen, but because we serve the one who holds the future in his hands. Friends, we hold fast to the promise Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arranged like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is sown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Friends, every word of God proves true. And God will prove himself true to you and I if we trust in his word. Now, there was order amongst God's people. There was continuity amongst God's people. And there was genuine, heartfelt, life-transforming revival taking place. Friends, how will you know when God is working in his people? How will you know when God is working in his church? How will you know when God is working in your life? Two fruits rise to the surface as we conclude Nehemiah 11 and 12. This is what comes out of the life of someone whose eyes are on the Lord Jesus Christ and they are being transformed into his image. Number one, there will be an undivided devotion. An undivided devotion. And number two, unrestrained gratitude. Unrestrained gratitude. First, an undivided devotion. Very simply said, when God is working in your heart, obedience to God is a top priority. When God is working in your heart, I mean the real deal, not some stuffy, fluffy, emotional high one weekend. I'm talking spirit-wrought, born-again bought, transforming us from the inside out. How will you know? Obedience to God is a top priority. Do you know what that means for us? God doesn't accept excuses in not obeying him. We can give excuses to our boss. We can give excuses to our kids. We can give excuses to your pastors or your church members about why you won't commit or why you won't repent or why you won't tell the truth or why you won't put the local church first. All the different things we can come up with. I'm busy. I'm tired. I'm stressed. You don't know what's going on in my life. And the excuses go on and on and on and on. Friends, you're not dealing with a busy issue. You're dealing with a disobedient issue. If God has brought very clearly in his word through a brother or sister, a pastor or friend, what you should do in obedience to God, if you disregard that, you're not disregarding man. You are disregarding God. Friends, that includes me. That includes all of us. Obedience is when our will is bowing to the will of God. Look at me again at Nehemiah 11, verses 1 and 2. Where do we see that? Nehemiah 11, verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. Look at verse 2. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. You see there in verse 1, the spiritual leaders, the priests, the Levites, and the others, they were living there. They were already leading by example. They were close to the temple. They were populating the city. And not everyone needed to live in Jerusalem. But there was a need. 
The city was largely desolate and unoccupied. The city of God, the royal city, the holy city, the place where God's name uniquely became famous and dwelled among the nations. Friends, this is where the house of God, the temple of God was located. Because people went back to their homelands, it was, it was easier. Jerusalem was a little dangerous. There had been a lot of wars and exiles. It wasn't exactly the place that you probably wanted to raise your kids at first. You see, Jerusalem was a war zone throughout the centuries. With the damage from the Babylonian invasion, the city did not look attractive. You know, whoever those uh, HDTV folks up in North, northwest Arkansas, you know, whoever they are that show off the homes, what's their name? Come on, people. I know you watch this stuff. The renovating of houses. Say it again. Maybe. Jenny. We'll call her Jenny. Jerusalem was not showing up on Jenny's show. It just wasn't there. You know, come to Jerusalem, give it a makeover. No. Most of the people didn't want to go. So who would go? Everyone's going back to their lands. Everyone's going back to their houses. And the leaders are going, guys, this is where the temple is. This is where God's name is. This is where God has determined at this point in time to launch out a revived people to the nations. We need volunteers. Well, an ancient way of making decisions was casting lots. I am not suggesting you cast lots this afternoon. Don't roll dice. Don't pull straws. Don't flip coins. God, in a particular point in time in history, did use an ancient way that was similar to maybe casting lots or pulling straws for us to determine who would go. Interesting enough, it was one out of 10 that would be chosen. What's 10%? It's a tithe. We've been talking a lot about tithing in chapter 10. Literally, a tithe of the people would need to be willing to go. But you notice in verse 2, It's a little confusing on whether they were exactly chosen in that casting of lots, or they said, you know, we'll go. Even if we weren't chosen in the lots, we'll go. It just says they willingly offered, they freely volunteered. We will forsake our hometown. We will forsake our family inheritance to repopulate into Jerusalem. Friends, God may not call you to leave your family inheritance. He may not call you to leave your hometown. He may not call you to leave your home state. He may not call you to leave your home nation. He may desire you to stay put, plant roots, and bloom where you're planted. In fact, in Nehemiah 11, if you look at verses 25 to 36, there's a list of names of districts and villages. If you get out a map, there are towns that were 70 miles or less from the city of Jerusalem. One gigantic circle, north, south, east, and west. All these towns were as close as 15 minutes to 60 miles away of where the people would live. So it's very common that most members of a church won't be sent out as missionaries, and most members of a church won't be called to pull up everything out of their lives and go to a foreign place but a tenth of us it may. You never know. Regardless if God calls us to live closer to CCBC or he calls us to move 
further out somewhere else, all of us are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. Friends, if you want to know God's will in your life, it always begins with this first step. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. Do whatever you want with my life. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, have you ever wondered why Christians would uproot their life for the sake of Jesus? Have you ever wondered why Christians would give of their money and their time and leave family and friends, a hometown, a home state, or a home country for the sake of the kingdom? Friends, that's because Jesus already first gave up his life for us. Any amount of discomfort we might have in this life pales in comparison to the sacrifice Christ made for us. Friends, Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to the slums of earth to give his life as a ransom for many. Instead of protecting and preserving his life, he died for us as a substitute, bearing the penalty that we have accrued against a holy God, taking on the sin punishment we have committed and bore that in our place. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead proving that he really is the son of God. And he's ascended at the right hand of the father. And one day he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Friends, death is promised to everyone. Heaven is not. I wish that was preached more at funerals. Death is promised to everyone. Heaven is not. You have to put your faith in the one who came from heaven to earth to die as our Savior. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ Jesus. Be saved today. Receive Christ and what he has done for you in his great love and be born again. Friends, Christ, in his undivided devotion, obeyed his heavenly Father for our eternal good. The second thing I want you to notice when God is working revival in our hearts What will come out of our mouths? Unrestrained gratitude. Joy, gladness, and gratitude was pouring forth from the people's lives. Did you see all those references in there? In chapter 11 and 12? I mean, I know you probably got too caught up with the names. Don't miss it with all the names. Thanksgiving or giving of thanks was mentioned in chapter 11, verse 17, chapter 12, verse 8, chapter 12, verse 24, 27, 31, 38, 40, 46. Joy and gladness was mentioned, chapter 12, verse 27, verse 43, and verse 44. Friends, there was so much joy and gratitude amongst the people that their joy was being heard in the ears of people far away. I once depressed, discouraged, and disenfranchised people were having such a joy in God that nations and lands and peoples got ear of this new profound joy. Look at me at Nehemiah 12 verse 43. Nehemiah 12, verse 43. 
And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Friends, humbled people will be a thankful people. People who know they've been blessed way more than they deserved will have ways and reasons to give thanks. Friends, that's what Israel did. Here we are coming now almost to the very end of the book. It started out dark and dismal and depressing, and it's ending with a joy that is so loud, so contagious, so pervasive, they can't hold it in. People are getting wind of what God has done in their life. They rejoiced over a rebuilt city. They rejoiced over their spiritual leaders who led them in this revival, verse 44. And then in verses 44 to 47, they joyfully and sacrificially fulfilled the commitments they made back in chapter 10. Friends, as the church of Jesus Christ, we should rejoice always. We should pray without ceasing. We should give thanks in all circumstances because of what Christ has done for us. Members of CCBC, are you homesick? Is there an aching or longing to live somewhere else? Thinking it'll be happier somewhere else? Friends, since I've lived here, I've had thoughts of leaving this town. It has not always been pleasant to live here. Not because of you, but because of others who call themselves Christians and giving Christ a bad name. I run into my opponents all the time. Yesterday morning, last Saturday, they look at me as if I never existed. Why did we stay? Why did we leave what was familiar to us? Because God called us here. And because you're worth it. Friends, the writer of Hebrews says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friends, You may love Fort Smith, you may love the River Valley, and you may love Arkansas or Oklahoma, and that's a good thing. Love and learn to love where you live and love the people who live there. That's a good thing. But listen, it doesn't matter if America gets 20 times better or 20 times worse. Christians have a citizenship in heaven. This city is not the holy city. This world is being reshaped and remade to be the holy earth, the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Friends, when Jesus got up from the dead, it was the declaration he is king of the nations, not merely Israel, not merely America, but over the whole globe. Friends, God is saving in Christ a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So what does that mean for us here at CCBC? 
That means that even if we love where we live, or we don't, this city is not our eternal home. Jesus said in John 14, verses 1 to 3, do you want to know what God is preparing for us who love him? John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Friends, for the Christian, home is where God is. It's where Christ is. One day, Revelation 21 and 22 says, a new Jerusalem, the heavenly city of the living God, will be a place where God's people will dwell with their God forever. Jesus is preparing a place for us, a place that is a guaranteed promise of our heavenly inheritance. Way better than land in Oklahoma. Way better than land in Arkansas. There is a land he is going to prepare for us that is paved with gold. So how should we pray? How should we live? How shall we love while we live in this town and in this city as we wait for the one that will never go away? T. Desmond Alexander says this, by believing in the concept of a future holy city, New Jerusalem, Christians run the risk of being ridiculed for promoting a pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die mentality. Yet such an outlook does not reflect the teaching of the Bible. Jesus did not teach his disciples to pray, take me to heaven. Rather, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. For those who are united to Jesus Christ, eternal life begins here and now as does the citizenship of the city that will one day be created by God on a renewed earth. Jesus challenges his followers, look forward in faith, to pray and work for the spread of God's rule here and now. Friends, a people who possess an undivided devotion to the Lord will see God's gospel advance through their life a people who respond to God's mercy and grace in their life with unrestrained gratitude will have a joy that in God's providence might be heard far away. May that be true of us here at CCBC. Let's pray. Father, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. We praise you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have already promised us and guaranteed a heavenly inheritance, a land, a city, a place that is perfect, a place that will truly be our happy home because you're there. Lord, we pray that even now, as we are called to live here in this time, and in this century, and in this place, that we would, by your grace, seek first your kingdom. We pray that your will would be done, and your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, Lord, we pray that we would be undivided in our obedience, that we would put away excuses, 
procrastination and obey with all our heart by your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.